Dan. Dan's like, oh, I, I should feel bad, but the way you're saying it's making me not, okay, yeah, I'll just change. Anyway, um, no, but I am, I am genuinely excited to, to actually be, begin using the Bible reading plan that, that Dan has developed. Um, I'm really stoked for us as a whole church to be reading together that Bible reading plan. Um, again, some of us, some of you already have your Bible reading plan. That's fine. But many of us are probably going to jump on this journey together. But regardless of what Bible reading plan you use, spending time with the Lord through his word is absolutely essential for us to thrive as believers. But not just as individuals. I would argue that the very health and future vitality of this church, of Wyoming Church of Christ, hangs on whether we will read and submit to what is written in this book. I can't tell you how many times I've seen local churches or entire denominations set aside the importance and authority of the scriptures only to land in rank liberalism where essentially everything goes or drift into bizarre mysticism where there's a hot pursuit of spiritual experience yet it's detached from biblical truth. And it's my hope, it's my prayer that we would not as this local church fall prey to either one of those heirs I just described, be it rank liberalism where we chuck out the authority of the Bible or we drift into some form of esoteric mysticism where we're trying to find God through some bizarre experience that's not laid out for us already in Scripture. And that's my prayer, is that we would not fall prey to that, but the way in which we don't fall prey, friends, family here, is that we read the Bible, study the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, that if you cut us, we bleed Bible, as it were. Charles Spurgeon is a famous preacher who believed and preached the Bible. And in his autobiography, he has insightful thoughts about people that are just saturated in the scriptures. Listen to this. I want you, he gives great word pictures. Listen, he says, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right, until, right into it until we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his, and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till, its very, till his very soul was saturated with Scripture, and 
Though his, through his, though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, the sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. See, and my prayer, friends, is that in 2019, that Wyoming Church of Christ would be marked by this book, submitting to, loving, cherishing, singing, relishing the truths that are in this book. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. What would it look like? What would it look like if our lives were shaped this year in 2019, were shaped by what we read in this book? I mean, whether you realize it or not, you've been shaped by a set of values that tells you what is good and what is to be pursued and what is to be avoided. Everybody on this earth has a belief system, and they make decisions, spend their time, energy, and money accordingly. So what would it look like if those of us who make up Wyoming Church of Christ centered our lives on what the Bible describes as wisdom? What would it look like for us to be walking in wisdom? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Walking in wisdom by the word. Walking in wisdom by the word. So, that's where we're headed as we unpack this text in Ephesians. And Josh, brother, you did a great job of reading that for us. But before we jump into it and begin to look at it and hopefully bleed Bible afterwards, let's, uh, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, we just read that passage in Ephesians, and last week I thought Dan did a tremendous job explaining the importance of we got to know, hey, where is this book situated within what's called the canon of Scripture, the 66 books? Where... Who's this guy writing to, et cetera, et cetera. So before we unpack this, it might be helpful to think through some of those things. So the guy who wrote this was a guy named Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter and sent it to a people who lived in Ephesus. Hence, if you have your Bible on your lap or on your phone, it says Ephesians, right? So Ephesus was originally a Greek colony, but at the time of this letter, it was a Roman province of Asia. This was a wealthy city because it was strategically located near the entrance of a seaport or a harbor. Now, I want you to picture this. I want you to picture this. People would come from all over the known world to do business and trading there. In fact, it was such a busy city and port for business and trading that it became a melting pot of different ethnicities, different nationalities, um, different cultures, all came there, in a sense, kind of like Sydney in a way. It was a very melting pot. But it would have been a tough to be a Christian in this city, um, because this, this city had a high tolerance of idolatry and a low one of Christianity. In fact, when Paul went there on his second missionary journey, people started, and if you want, you can read this in um, Ephesians 19, 
people started a riot, started a riot, all because others weren't worshiping a pagan goddess named Diana anymore. Now, we may get some kind of persecution here in this world, and I'm preaching God's word here, but imagine if I'm like, hey, don't worship this pagan goddess named Diana, and all of a sudden people start lighting the petrol station on fire and ah, screaming and rushing, and that, that would be a bit different this morning. Would you agree? But that's the kind of context Paul enters in his second missionary journey. Really gnarly, to use a Southern California word, really gnarly place. High tolerance of idolatry, low one of Christianity. And after spending a couple of mission trips, or a couple of mission trips there and spending three years in Ephesus, Paul left. And years later, while he was in prison, he wrote a letter to the Christians in Ephesus and the province of Asia. Now, I say all of that, not just to give you some information and go, yeah, 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 but you have to understand, friends, this is a real letter written to real people. We are snooping through their mail. Does that make sense? It is God's word, it is living and active, but this is a real letter written to real people who are living in a real period of time. Now, what Paul does, because it's a miracle that anyone in a city like this would ever, ever become a Christian, right? We might get a little bit of persecution now, but how about if you, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, you're, how about your, now your life is on the line? Lose your job, lose your company, et cetera, et cetera. That, we can't relate to that in the West, at least those of us here in Australia or if we lived in America or wherever. But this is the kind of context. And yet these people have become born again. They become Christians. And so what Paul does is he wants them to know, and those of all of us who, by the way, are in Jesus Christ, who have been born again, he wants them to know that it is by God's sovereign grace that they are Christians. And so he spells that out in the first three chapters. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Paul lays out doctrine. And then chapter 4, 5, and 6, now live in light of this doctrine. If you happen to be sitting with a bunch of eggheads egg this week, which you probably won't be, but a bunch of egghead scholars and you want to impress them, you can sit around and drink some coffee at a cafe and say, you know, it's quite interesting to me. In the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters lay out an orthodoxy, and the final three lay out an orthopraxy. And they'll go, hmm, that's very good. That's very good. But it's doctrine, practice. This is the truth, one, two, three, right? The indicative, as it were. Four, five, six, the imperative. Does that make sense? That's how Ephesians is broke down for us. Now, it's interesting because when I look at this, of what Josh just read for us, and Paul says, okay, now, remember, we're in, we're in the imperative part. Be very careful then. Watch out. Be careful. In Australia, they say, hey, look. <laughs> you know, in Hawaii, it's, you know what? Anyway. I'm a bit distracted this morning, as you can tell. So, um, be very careful. Listen, do I have your attention? Be very careful then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. When I read that, I, I, it, and he says, not as unwise, but as wise, or not as, there's a contrast there. You have, it almost kind of smells like Proverbs. You have a, someone that's foolish, right? And then someone that's wise. Do you kind of catch that from the text a little bit? Yeah. Now, when I think of someone 
When I hear the word foolish or fool, I think growing up in the 80s, Mr. T. Mr. T, Mr. T had a line, and do you remember Mr. T's line? He says, I pity the what? I pity the fool. Right? If you've ever seen a Rocky movie or whatever else, I pity the fool, you know? So, but when we think of the word foolish, we might say, well, hey, foolish person is someone who just acts irresponsibly, like they're basically the, the town idiot, or they're just, they're a person that is not very smart. It's interesting, though, and, and then when we think of someone wise, we think of someone that is very eloquent, maybe has lots of degrees and impresses people. However, it's interesting. Scripture, in Psalm 14, verse 1, says the fool, defines the fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. No matter how smart they are, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool doesn't believe or behave as if there is a God. He or she, this person, has anti-God thinking and anti-God living patterns. However, the Bible describes the wise person as the one who fears the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise instruction and knowledge. And what's wonderful about Ephesians, again, think of the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, is in Ephesians 2, there is this sort of, uh, how do I say this, death blow. If you, if you have this idea of like, at, the, at their core, humans are good. There's actually this death blow in Ephesians 2, 1. It says, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it lays out how depraved people are. But then there's this amazing shift in the gospel. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love of which he loves us, right? He saved us. So, so I say all of that because of this. Don't lose me here. If we are born depraved, according to what the Bible says, and again, are we going to be the type of people that believe this and submit to it, or just you know, believe what we want about it? According to the Bible, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're to- the Bible, we are totally depraved, as it were. Now, if that's true, if that's true, then we are born into this world God-hating. We are born into this world foolish. And the only way to cease being a fool and become wise is through salvation. Titus 3 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So the only way we can walk in wisdom is by God first coming to us in grace and saving us, regenerating us, causing us to be born again. And if that's the case, if this has happened, then we can redeem the time and know God's will. So here's where we're headed. Walking in wisdom means this, two things. Here's where you can hang your hat this morning. Walking in wisdom means redeeming the time and knowing God's will. Those are the two points I want to unpack. Redeeming the time and knowing God's will. So notice he says 5.15, right? Ephesians 5. 
He says, Look carefully, then, how you walk. Look carefully is the word. Give this your undivided attention. And then he says, why? Making the best use of the time. Now, this idea of redeeming the time has the idea of buying up the time. Um, kind of like when you want to shop for a bargain, you usually don't just, well, you might, but you usually don't say, oh, that's the first price I'm going to see. I'm just going to grab it. Some of you might do that. That's cool. But some of us like to go on Coastie's Bag of Bargain, or some of us like to go on Gumtree because you want to try to find a good deal. It's the same idea here. Paul's saying we need to make the best use of the time. Now, again, talking about translations, if you have an NIV, it might say making the, be- making the most of every opportunity. And I, th- I suppose that's helpful to a point, but the time, the time, when he says that, we need to redeem the time, Paul is talking about an allocated or fixed season of time. Basically, having sovereignly bounded our lives with eternity, God knows both the beginning and the end of our times on earth. So if you're 13 years old or 12 or 15, right now, there you are. Or if you're 25 or 65 or older, or if you're like Eliana who's two, there, God sees the beginning and the end of their life. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy when you actually stop and think about that. Because right now, I'm 38 years old. Believe it or not, I know, I'm old. All right, I'm 38, and this is sort of life to me. And it is life to me, but like God sees God is outside of time. He's not like, oh, I, all I see is Rob at 38. He sees me at, God willing, 48 and 58 and 68 and beyond. Right? He saw me at 18 and 28, etc. So as Christians, the, 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 the word there, time, there's this span, this warp and woof of your life. Does that make sense? There's a span of your life. So as Christians, he says, we need to make the best use of the warp and woof of our life, of the time, of this whole lot that God has been given us. There, one poet says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, our lives are quick. Our lives even now, friends, whether you believe this or not, maybe you're just a utilitarian and you're just living life and you're just going to have a coffee after this and you think that the sun's going to rise tomorrow and everything's just going to be as is because that's how the world works. But listen, our lives hang by a slender thread of sovereign grace. We're here now because God has given us this life. You're breathing now because God has given you this life now. So, so, make the best use of the time. There was a bloke who was 19 years old who didn't want to waste any of his time or the opportunities. So before his 20th birthday, he made some resolutions, right? Some decisions that would guide the rest of his life. And in his fourth resolution, he said this. He made 70. I can't keep one or two but he made 70, he said, I resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can. I resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can. This guy, this young man was wise. Jonathan Edwards is his name. And the Lord ended up using him way back centuries ago. Part of the reason that, though, is because he didn't waste the time. We have a time. 
now. Here's the deal. If you look in the text, it says, don't be foolish, right? You wise make the best of the time because, because the days are evil. You see that there? Because the days are evil. Now, what does that mean? That the devil runs around in a pajama suit with a pitchfork and horns, poking people and turning them into gremlins? What does that mean? First, the days are evil because God gives Satan enough leash so that he can be called the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And second, the days are evil because God does not fully restrain the pride, rebellion, and river of wickedness that flows from the human heart. We live in a fallen world. We see murder. We see horrific things. And third, the days are evil because of all the natural disasters that crash down on both the good and the bad, as it were. And Paul's, he writes in Ephesians, he's not naive about the world. Right? He's not some armchair critic. He, he knows. He knows the days are evil. He felt he, the struggle for sin in his own life in Romans 7. Have you read that before? Things I don't want to do, I do, etc. He even felt the sins of others as he was beaten with rods, stoned, and imprisoned. And so what is he saying? In light of this, in light of this, because the days are evil, right, because the opportunity is so precious and because constant watchfulness and unwavering zeal for Christ so necessary, he's saying, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see that? Understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, how do we know what God's will is? That's a very important question. People always ask that question. I just want to know God's will. Is the Lord's will like a mystery? Like it's like an Easter egg hunt? You know, we're coming up on Easter in a couple months, and he goes, I want you to know my will, but, oh, you're getting warmer. Uh, uh-oh, ooh, ooh. Uh, yo, eh, eh. Gabriel, throw a, throw a lightning bolt at him. Come on. Uh, no, 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 no. God makes it abundantly clear that his will is that we be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires, wills, desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. God's will is that you be saved, friend. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God's will is that you turn from your sin and place all of your weight on Jesus and Jesus alone. You can be saved. God's will is that you actually be spirit-filled. Now, it's interesting. Where am I getting that from? Well, the text, right? Look at 17, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And what is the will of the Lord? Does he just leave, leave it there and understand what the will of the Lord is? And you're going to have to go find that. Good luck. Ready? Go. Is that what happens? No. Understand what the will of the Lord is? Do not get drunk. You see that there? You want to know what God's will is? Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to this unbridled behavior. Instead, be controlled by, be filled by the Spirit. Is that you would be Spirit-filled. God's will is that you be saved, Spirit-filled, and sanctified. 
There come some S's for you, for those of you that like that. God's will is that you be sanctified. First Thessalonians 4.3. Listen to this passage. I can't tell you how many people <clears throat> have come to me who are in some sin, and they say, some significant sin. Let's just take premarital sex as an example. Okay? I'm not yelling when I say that, by the way. That's a genuine struggle that people have. Okay? And they'll say, I want to know what God's will is for me. I want to know what God's will is. I just want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And lovingly, I'll walk them through these passages. This is what God's will is for you. So you'd be saved, that you'd be spirit-filled, it's that you'd be sanctified. It's not my opinion. It's just, it's just what the Bible says. God's will is also that you'd be suffering. Suffering. 1 Peter 2.21 For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. It's interesting, too, if you look at the text. Look at what spirit-filled people do. Look at how they live. Notice, 18. And you're not get drunk with wine, <clears throat> for that is debauchery. <clears throat> what does it say in the NIV? Does someone have it there? Instead, be filled with the Spirit. No, what's the word? Do they use debauchery in the NIV? Wow. Oh, surprising. I'm not saying because it's bad. I'm just saying it's a bit of an that's a bit of an antiquated word. Does anyone say debauchery anymore? I'm just saying that it's just funny that they do. Okay, well, never mind. Do not have a good drunk of wine, for that is debauchery. Instead, here we go. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, here we go. What does that look like? What does that look like? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making medley, right, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. Well, I only like to give thanks when my life's going pretty good, thank you. But that's not what the Bible's saying. What, well, hey, brother, are you spirit-filled? Are you spirit-filled? Well, are you thanking God in every single situation for that? Then the answer is yes. Are you praising God? Are you coming to church, the local church, God's gospel on display, his people now, the local church, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for God, God the Father, for all things, and submitting to one another, loving each other, putting each other first. That's what spirit-filled looks like, friends. That, that's according to Ephesians. That, that's, what it, that's what it's going to look like. Now, saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, suffering. Let me say this. You see, only after we understand what pleases God can we live out His will in our lives, God's will. And our main understanding of his will comes from a good knowledge of his word. John Stott says this, the will of God for the people of God has been revealed in the word of God. I love that. The will of God for the people of God has been revealed in the word of God. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Should you have red carpet or blue carpet? Should you marry this bloke or that bloke? Should you? Hey, God's will, the way we walk in wisdom, 
is that we find God's will in God's word. The Lord is not silent. The Lord has spoken to us, and he gives us direction. And if we open up the Bible, we can have direction on how we live. And he loves you, and he cares for you. But if, you, if you're not in the text, if you're not reading the Bible in 2019, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty darn sinful. Just give me an amount of time, and I'll say, well, this is what feels right to me. This is what feels right to me. I don't, I don't really, you know, uh, that, it's dangerous. <laughs> really, really dangerous. I want us to be a people who submit under this book, that this alone has the authority. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, has the final binding authority on our lives. Now, this idea of walking in wisdom was not a new concept. It's actually a prominent theme discussed in the ancient world. It's, it's, uh, the theme is, how do we get wisdom? It is even an important subject repeated throughout the Old Testament. You see that in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, right? Wisdom's this, foolishness is this, etc. You also see this idea of wisdom with Greco-Roman literature and philosophers and ancient Jewish writings. In fact, in Jesus' time and during Jesus' day in his ministry, he preached about the wise and foolish men, right? That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Their lives, right, they built their lives upon different foundations, And then a few chapters later, Jesus not only teaches what true wisdom is, but he claims that he is greater than Solomon. Someone greater than Solomon is here. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the embodiment of wisdom. He walked in wisdom like no one on this earth has. He made the best use of his time on earth by living a sinless life. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin, Where we failed, he succeeded and obeyed perfectly on our behalf. He knew his Father's will, that not my will, but what? Your will be done, or thy will, there's King James flying out at us, thy will be done, and submitted to it, even when it meant going to the cross, of which we were just singing about. Our Lord has made the best use of the time, and he has perfectly obeyed the Father's will. Now, if we are his children and have been adopted into his family, we are called to walk in wisdom, friends, to make the best use of the time and to know God's will. Don't go on an Easter egg hunt trying to find it. In closing, there's a book that I'd recommend besides, obviously, the Bible. When you think about God's will, um, book by a guy not much older than me, so I don't know how you feel about buying that book or not, but not much older than me. guy is named Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung, and he wrote a book called Just Do Something. He talks a lot about, see, for the millennials, the millennials are, you know, hanging out and getting avo smash and lattes and putting their hands in the air wanting to know what God's will is for their life or whatever and not wanting to work very much and go on holiday all the time. And, and so this book really attacks that whole, like saying, he said, just go, just go do something and, and find God's will and God's word. Um, I don't want to sell the whole farm here, but it's a very, even if you're not a millennial, it's a very good reminder, some very good insightful thoughts. So it's called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Excellent book. I'd highly recommend it. And um, my prayer as I said in the beginning of this, I'm very excited, very, very excited 
to be studying God's Word together in this Bible reading plan. And look, at the end of the day, friends, this is, this is all we have, really. And, and, and to guide us and to lead us and correct us. And we need this book more than anything. I, I've, I've had a chance to chat with some of you at morning tea. Some of you, um, and I'm sorry if I call people out by name. I just, you, you know, you guys are like my family. So, um, but I was talking, well, I won't embarrass you by name, but I'm looking at you, is, is um, just she was sharing with me a couple weeks ago. I, I've been memorizing um, a psalm, and it's been so good and helpful for me to memorize a psalm because I've been thinking and pondering over those words, right? Yeah. I won't call you out by name, even though I'm looking at you now. But this, it, it, God's word will transform you, but you got, we've got to be the people that get into this book. We've got to be the people. I think I've banged that drum enough. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this morning. And Lord, it's, um, it's easy to hear things and sort of tick boxes in our minds. And it's another to actually have the discipline to get into the word on a, on a regular basis. Lord, would you help us to get up out of bed or stay up that hour later, whatever it might look like in our lives right now, and push through. And as Dan shared last week, Lord, sometimes it doesn't, it's not always glamorous, but yet there's, it's that continual feeding on your word to where we are transformed. Help us to be the people this year that, that do that. Lord, as Spurgeon said, help us to be the type of people that if you cut us, we bleed Bible. Lord, we want to be shaped, fashioned, molded by your word. So uh, we can't do that on our own. We're going to be distracted. We're going to run off into a thousand different directions. But we pray in your grace and in your mercy, you would help us to focus and to sit down at the table or at the couch or whatever it might be or outside and just plow through your perfect, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. And may you change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we are actually going to transition during this time now. If you're here, and I, again, I think it's wonderful. You know, it, every Sunday there's usually someone that's here. This is just how most churches operate. There's usually someone here that's not a Christian. And I think it's fantastic. I, I really encourage you just to continue to discover and think about Jesus. Think about the, uh, as I was trying to highlight earlier, he walked in wisdom like nobody else. He's the embodiment of wisdom. Um, we think it's wonderful that you're here. Really do. Now, it's not just a caveat, cheap, f sentimental phrase. I really do. But this time, when we celebrate, similar to baptism, is for those who have been born again. 